What's happening, everybody? This is the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. I am the chief recovering hypocrite around these parts, Nolan Jesse Hakenen. And today is December 4th. And what that means is it is the very last podcast of the year because I'm going to take the rest of the month off and jump back into this in January uh, to be able to spend time with my family. So my, my Christmas gift to you today is the guest that we have. This guy I'm going to talk to today is a accomplished musician. He has a degree, sadly, from the University of Michigan in, in music. He is a, a string bass player, um, but made his transition from classical music to IT, works in the IT industry, and yet has written one of my favorite theological books of the last couple of years, uh, a book called If One Uses It Lawfully, talking about the Mosaic Law and the life of a Christian. So today, my gift to you for Christmas is Matt Ferris. Thanks, Noel. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you. Um, I'm looking forward to it. So, so how does a um, upright bass player who is in the IT industry decide to write a book on the Mosaic Law. Like, how does that even happen? I, I think it happens in part because of my uh, conversion story. So when I finished school, I, I got a job in, in the Tulsa Philharmonic. And in a professional orchestra, your chair is your chair. You don't move around. And so you share a stand with someone. And the, and the guy that I ended up sharing a stand with was a Christian. And I was raised in um, a sacramental tradition that you know, I always knew God existed, but I also knew he wasn't happy with me. And so peace with God and, and an understanding of the gospel was not something that I had. And so um, this guy began inviting me to Bible studies at the local church. I started going, I started reading scripture, and that's when I was, was saved. And I had a mentor in those early years who um, just did a great favor to me of encouraging me to read scripture myself. And he also put good books in my hand. He told me, you know, read this, don't read that. Right. And so I had that early um, guidance and I, I also had a love of reading and, and of study. And so um, as I, as I grew in my Christian life, I would, I would hear the message of the gospel uh, put forth as, you know, you, you cannot do anything. You cannot work any work or do any deed that will justify you before God. It is by faith apart from works. And I, that's all over scripture, right? That's all over the New Testament. And then I would, I would hear some people say, you can't be justified by the law, but don't think that you still don't have to keep the law. And I, I would read some of what Paul would say in Romans 7, saying, we have been released from the law. We have died to the law in Galatians. And there was kind of a dissonance there. Like, Wait a minute. You're telling me this, but I'm reading Paul to say this. And so through the years, you know, this, this topic was just sort of on a low boil until finally I decided I'm going to pull together the research on this and, and write something that I think makes sense of the topic, which admittedly is a topic that is nuanced, it's complex. I think proof texting your way to a coherent position on how does the New Testament treat the law, it, it can't be done, even though a lot of people try to do it. Well, yeah, for sure. I, in fact, I remember getting an email from you and said, hey, 
I wrote this book. Uh, we have a mutual friend. And she said, hey, I, we have a mutual friend. Would you read this book? And, and I get a fair number of random books just sent my way. And so um, I thought, okay, we got a mutual friend. I'll, I'll give it at least a little bit of a read. And I'm, if, if, if I recall correctly, I sat down to read your book and I read it in one setting. Um, because I was so quickly drawn in. This is not a massive theological tome that uh, people are going to, you know, just have to wade their way through, but it is such a precise and complete look at the law through a New Testament lens. I, I've I was, I remember, I think I shot you an email and said, I want to talk. Like, we, we should talk right yeah. away. Or I'm totally on board. I want to, I want to endorse the book. I want to do everything I can. Because it was yeah. one of the best, clearest, uh, it was an encouraging look at the law through the lens of the gospel of grace. What has the response been to it? Like, what have, have people kind of come up with the classic, oh, you're just an antinomian, um, like, oh, attacks? Yeah. Or what, what's the response been? Yeah. Um, it, it's been, I guess, in some sense, predictable. So you do have people who look at it and sort of take a cursory glance at what I've said and say, oh, you're just an antinomian. Others who I would say have a better understanding of what Paul says and say, thank you. I agree. Um, no one has made it, you know, clear like this. And, and so it's, you know, it's, it's been a mixed bag, I guess I'd say. So let's, let's dive into a little bit of, of, of what is in the book, because I, I want people to hear this stuff. So, so obviously, the, the book title is, is based on, on 1 Timothy 1.9, where, uh, where Paul makes the statement um, that the law is good if it is used lawfully. Um, in other words, there's a, a good use of law, a bad use of law, a lawful and an unlawful use of the law. Right. In your mind and from your reading of Scripture, what is an unlawful use of the law, which is, by its very nature, not good, an ungood uh, use of the law? Yeah, I, I think the brief answer to that is to take the law and apply it to Christians and say, this is your standard for living. This is your guide. You're obligated to keep this. That's an unlawful use of the law. Now, right. now, and is that for all? So, so then people are going to, one of the arguments is, well, of course we have to keep the law. Are you saying I can run out and murder somebody? I can go and commit right. adultery with uh, reckless abandon? What's your response right. to that? Right. And that's, um, that's where I think you need, you need more of an overarching approach to this. And you need to see the place of the law in salvation history, in the unfolding of redemption. And so I, I think scripture is clear that the law was given to Jews. It was given to the people of Israel. And, um, it, you know, there's, there is a tradition that says the law was given to Adam in the garden with as much fullness as it was given at Sinai, uh, except without the thunder, right? Now, I, I can't see that anywhere in Genesis that, that Adam was given the Ten Commandments. And so to get to the heart of your question, part of the unfolding of redemption and salvation history is to see that just because we don't have the law as something that we're obligated to does not mean that we have no pattern to follow or that we don't pursue holiness. We do. In fact, 
I make the argument in the book that one of the reasons we are not obligated to law is because it's too low of a standard. In fact, the standard that believers have is Christ. And this is why Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. In other words, this is not something you're going to read about. In Moses, the new commandment is that we love one another as he has loved us. And that's, that's not something that was revealed in the Mosaic law, a love that would lay down one's life, not for one's friends, but for one's enemies. And that, that is the love of Calvary. That's the standard we have. That's our measure. So uh, a lot of people look at those two things as absolutely inseparable, the idea of pursuing holiness and obeying the law. Uh, and, and, and sometimes they lean into Calvin's, uh, the way it's described as the third use of the law, where he, he, he says um, that the law is something that now, because of the gospel of Christ, we are able to now obey and we ought to pursue obeying that. So how do you, how do you, do you, do you bifurcate completely those two things, pursuing holiness and obeying the law? Or are they things that are, are they fully mutually exclusive or how do they interact in the life of a, a believer? I, I probably wouldn't say I bifurcate them entirely. In fact, as close as I come to a, a thesis of the book, it is that the law the Mosaic law is not inconsistent with Christian holiness, but it is not coextensive with it. In other words, a lot of the commands that you read in the law are not inconsistent with what we're called to do and to be in the New Testament, but they are not as far. They do not go as far, right? And so, again, the example of the new commandment is one. Um, the way that Paul uses the law, and this is where... Um, Brian Rosner's book in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series is, is, a, is a great resource as well. I quote him several times. He talks about the wisdom use of the law, that Paul actually replaces the law, uses it in, in a wisdom way, even as he sets it aside as a binding law covenant. And so, you know, you find him doing things that are kind of unexpected, like pulling out the command that you shouldn't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain to talk about remuneration for Christian workers, right? Things like that. And so we can see a wisdom, we can see um, examples in the law that are still um, serviceable, they're still valuable to us, even as we say it doesn't retain its obligation. So how should a New Testament believer, so like just, let's just say Joe, a tender in, in my church, they, they're reading through their Bible, they're reading the law in the Old Testament, and how do they interact with that as a, a, a follower of Christ? So I think there's a couple of things you could say. In Romans 3, Paul says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin, right? And so it is, in a sense, a standard that calls everyone up short because no one can keep the law. Um, so that's, that's one thing that it does is that it reveals our shortcomings. It reveals our sin. The other way that, that is a lawful use of the law is to see all of it that what is traditionally called the ceremonial law, and I'll talk about that in a minute, is that there are tremendous pictures of Christ through the sacrifices, through the tabernacle, through things like um, 
the sacrifice of Isaac, right, that point forward and that present these types of Christ. And so when you come to Luke 24 and Jesus says to the two on the Emmaus Road, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained in them in this, all the scriptures of the things concerning himself, the Old Testament is a book about Christ. And so we need to look at it with that in view. So that's that's a couple of ways. I, I reject the idea that what I'm proposing in the book, that is freedom from obligations to the law, is in any way some sort of Marcionitism or some denial of the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I embrace the Old Testament as God's word, um, tremendously valuable. I read it every day, right? So what I'm saying is in no way um, some sort of demotion or rejection of the Old Testament. It is seeing it in its proper context within salvation history. So you mentioned earlier the um, the ceremonial law, like uh, the so-called ceremonial law. The, the typical thing to do is to uh, separate out the law, uh, which you and I would see as one one thing. The law is the law. Um, and to break it into three pieces, you know, the civil, the ceremonial, the moral law, and to say, obviously, the moral law is still something we should pursue to follow. Uh, the ceremonial and the civil law are, have been, those are the things that have been set aside. So how do you, how do you answer that objection? Because that's the most common thing I hear about the law. It is. Yes, I would agree. And I would simply say, where is it in scripture? Where is it that any of the apostles refer to the law as the ceremonial, the moral, the civil? It's not there. It's, it's an assumption of history, and I would say, in some sense, a confessional stance. But whenever Paul speaks about the law, that's all he says, the law, right? You also have died to the law, right? And so... There isn't, it's one thing to say, to look at the commandments and say, well, this, this obviously referred to governing uh, society in Israel, you know, building a parapet on your roof, things like that. That's fine. But to say that I'm going to take these categories and I'm going to dispense with two of them, but I'm going to put you under this third one and say, you are obligated to this. I think the clincher there is Romans 7, where Paul actually uses the 10th commandment to say, this is the thing that killed me, right? And the other kind of backdoor um, way that people try to say, no, no, you're still obligated to it. It's just, well, no, Paul was only saying we're free from the curse of the law, not the commandment. But he repeatedly says that the thing that aroused sin in him, the thing that killed him was the commandment, not the curse, the commandment. Well, I mean, and that's consistent with uh, with Paul in in James five, or not James five, sorry, Galatians five, where he's like, "For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm and don't submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery." And he's talking about the law here. And then later on in verse four, he says, "You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace." I mean, that's super intense. Like he's like, you try to follow the law. You try to justify yourself by the law. You are, you, you've fallen from grace, which is a crazy concept. Absolutely. And I, and I think we should be clear that a lot of the folks I interact with, maybe some that you do too, will agree 100%. We are not justified by the law, but 
They want to bring the law back in for sanctification. And that's another division that I simply don't see Paul making to say that you know, as strong as he is in rejecting any law for justification, is he now going to bring it back in and say, well, of course, you have to keep it for sanctification. I think Galatians 3 answers that forcibly when he says, you know, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And he goes on to talk about the law. So it's, I think, untenable to say that that sort of division um, is anywhere in Paul's thought. That's, again, where First Timothy, the law is not made for the just. And if you're in Christ, that's a description of who you are. That's right. You are the just. Yeah. Exactly. The, yeah. the law is clearly not for you, he is saying uh, there in First Timothy. So I, I wonder if most of the people that I interact with um, who may have a different view on the law, especially as it relates to sanctification, I think they... They're coming from a good place. They're coming from wanting to be mature in their faith, wanting to um, grow in their sanctification, wanting to represent Jesus in a fallen world. I, I see so many people that, that desire that deeply, which is why they say, oh, we must obey the law. But in doing so, it almost seems like they enslave themselves to the law and make Christianity um, um, unattractive. They end up uh, going backward, in, not that you can't go backward in the sanctification, but they almost like they, they stall it out because of their fear Absolutely. rather than really embracing the freedom that they have in Christ. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of the reason for that or one of the explanations for it is, is not really understanding the changes that come with headship right? Paul talks about headship extensively in Romans 5 and Colossians as well. But what I say in the book, and I think this is borne out by scripture, is that the law, the Mosaic law, its, its covenantal home is Israel. Its spiritual home is those under the headship of Adam. Mm. But his, he's very clear that if you're a Christian, you're now under the headship of Christ. And what that means is, judicially, you have died and been raised with Christ, and you're now seated with him in the heavenly places. I often use the example, if someone has committed a capital crime and they've been executed, what else can the law do to them? Mm. We generally don't dig up corpses and put them back on trial. But that is, in a sense, if you're, if you're telling the Christian you still need to obey the law, you're taking him from the headship of Christ and putting him back under the headship of Adam. And so I think realizing the implications of headship is another reason why the Christian is not under the law. You know, you made a comment in your book that I'd love to have you unpack a little bit because I, I, I noted it as I was reading through the book. I highlighted it and then I was like, Wait, with a big question, which I want to think about this one for a little bit. You said, if there is any law that the Gentiles are under, it is the law of conscience. Right. Unpack that for me a little bit and what you meant by that. And just because I think that fits into the conversation here. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a frequent um, 
comment as well, um, so-called natural law, which you know others have said conscience is simply natural law. I think it's important that the way the word law is used in scripture is multifaceted, right? And so it's almost in this sense to say that Gentiles are under the law of conscience is to use the word law as a synonym for principle, right? There are some things that, that mankind seems innately to know are wrong and other things that are right, but it's not the same as the Mosaic law, nor is it anywhere near as specific as the Mosaic law. And I think part of that, um, part of the reason behind that is where Paul in Romans 2 says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things of the law, these not having a law are law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law, not the law itself, the work of the law written on their hearts. So he, he said a few important things there. First of all, he's said very clearly, Gentiles do not have the law, right? And later in three, he's going to say, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that all the world may be, you know, judged. The first three chapters of Romans are really an indictment of all mankind, Jew and Gentile. And so to say that Gentiles are under the law of conscience is simply to say that there are some things that people know are wrong and that they're no, they know are right. Um, but I don't know anyone who would say that a Gentile who has no history with Christianity or Judaism for that matter, knows innately not to work on Saturday. They know to keep the Sabbath. They don't know that. That's not written on their conscience, right? That's a revealed law given to Israel. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting because you, you wouldn't, uh, nobody I think would uh, go to a modern day Jew um, and uh, say, to, and if you were to ask a modern-day Jew whether any Gentile was under their law, they would look at you like you were a crazy person. Right. Um, they, they would not expect that that any of, of, of the law that they follow is something that is incumbent on the life of, of people outside of their, their faith. Right. Um, right. And yet now as Christians, we kind of back into it. I mean, I think that was Paul's whole argument in Galatians. Man, let's not back into this, um, what we have been yeah. set free from. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I want to return a bit to the, the whole question of moral, civil, and ceremonial, because the other frequent objection that I hear is people will quote Matthew 5 to me and say, well, you see, Jesus did not come to destroy the law, and until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, not one iota will pass away until all is fulfilled. To which I usually answer, what part of the law did Jesus leave unfulfilled? And no one has given me a good answer to that yet. But I, I, again, I think a, a coherent understanding of what, what Jesus is saying there demands that we see this unfolding of salvation history. And so the key there is until all is fulfilled, until all is accomplished. And when he died on the cross, everything was accomplished. Everything was accomplished. And so... There's no curse. There's no. There's no obligation. Yeah, one of my favorite diagram. We uh, we're trying to 
you teach this at our church once. And one of my favorite diagrams that we ever came up with is one of the most simple things in the world. It was an arrow with the word law in it, the word Jesus after the arrow with a period at the end of Jesus. And it was just, that's it. The whole thing, yeah. the law points to Jesus, and Jesus is the period at the end of the sentence of the law. Yeah. Uh, just as, as simple as I as I can make it. And, and that's right. I think if I remember right, I'd have to go dig it up. You, it, you quoted Luther, where he kind of was like, no, the law does this. It just basically, in my my summary, it tears you down, it denigrates, it makes, it makes you see how awful you are in sin. Right. That's what it does. And, and then, then at that point, you have nowhere to look but Jesus. And then Jesus says, I, I know, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all of that, and I'm going to put a period on the end of the sentence for it in your life. And I, I think if we begin to grasp that, it changes our posture toward even obedience. So now it's not like I'm trying to obey the law because it's the law. It is now I can actually say yes to Jesus. I can actually say okay to him when he exercises his headship, like you were saying earlier, over me, his authority over me. I, it's, it's, a, it's a complete posture change. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that has to do with headship. The other example I like to use is, um, you know, do you strive to keep Canadian law or fill in any country you want, right? If you live in the United States, you're going to say no. It's possible that you are doing um, things that agree with Canadian law. But in general, I don't worry about whether I'm obeying the laws of another country because I don't live there. And so the land where the law prevailed, I don't live there anymore. And so that's where I think it's important as well. The difference, it's a subtle one, but I think Paul makes it, and that is the difference between keeping the law and fulfilling the law. And so he, he talks, basically he says that love is the fulfillment of the law. If I'm thinking about how I'm loving my fellow man, if I'm thinking about loving the Lord, then concerns about, am I keeping the law? Go away. Because Paul says, you will fulfill the law. And even the places where he seems to come closest in the New Testament to laying out law for believers, he never never actually goes there. Romans 13, right? He quotes several of the Ten Commandments, and he says, you know, for the law or the commandments, and he quotes a few and says, it's fulfilled through love. What's important there is he never says, you guys need to keep these commandments. Remember that. He doesn't say that. He says, love is the fulfilling of the law. Says the same thing in Galatians. And so I think that ordering is important. If I focus on love, the law will be fulfilled. The righteous requirement of the law, which I believe is holiness, it will be fulfilled. However, if I just focus on keeping the law, it never says I'm going to arrive at love, right? I, I may um, treat others as I want to be treated. Um, I may treat strangers well, but I'm not going to love my enemies because that is uniquely the New Testament, new command. So if someone is listening right now and they're like, okay, I've been 
this is all new to me, this whole idea of, of, of the law being not for me as a follower of Christ, but their conscience to them right now in this moment says, I must keep the law. And, and they're wrestling with that tension now in this conversation. What do you say to them? I would say that reading um, everything that the New Testament has to say about the law is important. So not just camping out there in Matthew 5, but looking, for example, at Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where this question came up. Gentiles had been saved. Some of the believing Pharisees had said, well, we got to circumcise them and tell them to keep the law of Moses. And the result was, you know, Peter says, why are you laying on the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers could bear? You look at 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul clearly links not just the law, but the Ten Commandments specifically with the Old Covenant, calls it a ministry of death and of condemnation. Its glory cannot be compared with the glory of the New Covenant. Um, Say the entire epistle to Galatians is a forceful repudiation of any role in the law, uh, in the believer's life, that the law has in terms of justification, certainly, but also of sanctification. Because I would argue in the first, really up to chapter five, about halfway through, he's been pretty focused on justification, but I think he takes a turn there. And he says, if you walk by the spirit, you are not under the law not under the law. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's also my, my comeback to the charge of antinomianism, right? That's a word from, from church history, uh, but it's not a word that appears in scripture. However, the word hyponomian under law does appear in scripture. It's the thing Paul says we're not. <laughs> well, and you know, I've never met a true antinomian. I really haven't. I, yeah, I, I think I think they're in some sense unicorns. And one of the guys that I quote is at least careful enough to make a distinction between what he calls a doctrinal antinomian and a practical antinomian. Right? <laughs> right. He would he would probably label me as a doctrinal antinomian, but. You know, again, I go to places like Romans 6.14 where Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under law. And the implication of that is if you put yourself under law, you're actually putting yourself back under the dominion, the mastery of sin. Well, and that's, that's you know, if there's one um, dark spot in the whole conversation about the law with me where I... I want to offer grace to people who disagree with me on this issue. It is the warnings like that. And that warning appears in Galatians 5 again. So all yeah. these all these in Galatians 3 and Galatians 5, there's these these stark warnings that that placing yourself under the law is a dangerous thing for a believer. Like it is at best, dangerous and unhealthy and and you know pragmatically kind of stymies your your sanctification or at least your at least your enjoyment of your sanctification it's yeah. at worse condemning and, and and that's scary it is yeah and i i'm with you there i i try to engage with you know people who disagree with me 
I try to be gracious about it, but I, and this is where, if it's one thing I've learned in the whole discussion is that um, proof texting is a pernicious evil. <laughs> and you need, you need more context than just, uh, you know, one or two verses. So, you know, that's, that's important. Um, the other thing, when you talk about interacting with people, I think people should be honest about what's going on. Even the folks who say you're still obligated to the law have, they have their back doors of getting out of obligation, right? So those are the folks who usually make the moral, civil, ceremonial distinction. Yep, yep. yep. So the civil and the ceremonial are dispensed mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. And the so-called moral law, which is usually equated with the Ten Commandments, um, there's a lot of freedom, particularly with the Fourth Commandment, with the Sabbath. Right, exactly. Right. In fact, the Sabbath ends up being the, um, it becomes the hardest thing to defend uh, for someone who wants to keep themselves under the law, like especially experientially. Right. Like, uh, like if you're, they, it's, they dance around it. Absolutely. And, and the Old Testament, Exodus 31, has probably the most specific guidelines for Israel about keeping the Sabbath. And nobody follows them. Right. Exactly. Right. So Sabbath, you know, the Sabbath is still Saturday, always has been, always will be. And so there's this sort of free adaptation to say, well, now we keep the Sabbath by going to church on Sunday and I try not to shop on Sunday, but things like but this. But I'm still going to mow my lawn, and exactly. I'm still going to go grocery shopping, and I'm, right. you know, I'm still going to fill the car up on gas. Yes. And pay no. the bills and do all yeah. those sorts of things. Right. I do those things because I feel free to do them because Paul says, you know, uh, let no one judge you with regard to a Sabbath or a holy day. So again, there's freedom. I think it's important there to see that Sabbath in the New Testament isn't so much a day as it is a person resting in Christ, resting in what he's done. Now, that isn't to say that um, running yourself ragged is a good idea. Physical rest is great and we should do it, but we shouldn't do it saying, I'm keeping the Sabbath. Or I'm Sabbathing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that is a great uh, landing point for us in this whole thing is the whole law uh, finds its fulfillment and its completeness in Jesus alone. And your Sabbath rest is in Jesus. And so many people in trying to pursue uh, obedience to the law who place themselves under the law do it because they so much want uh, to be made right with God through Jesus. And, and the truth is, you get your Sabbath in Jesus now. It is something you have. It's something you don't have to earn. It's something you don't have to keep. He is giving you that Sabbath rest. He is your Sabbath rest. And as we go this month into the Christmas season, it's a good thing to reflect on um, that Jesus's incarnation, his arrival on earth in 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 the body of a human um, is, 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 the beginning to the end of the law in the life of a believer. Yes. Amen. It is. 
Matt, thank you so much for coming on. We could probably talk about this for another couple hours and uh, maybe we should someday. I, I really encourage you, if you are looking for a Christmas present for yourself, uh, link will be in my show notes. Get your hands on this book if one uses it lawfully. I don't even remember how many pages it is, but it's not long. Yeah, it's, 140 it's 140 pages. It's an easy read. If, if you're somebody who is really overwhelmed, worried that you're going to get lost in in in, in the, the academics, this is such a good but thorough read on the law, and I just commend it to you. And give yourself the present and buy it for yourself for Christmas. And so, thank you so much for coming on, Matt. Appreciate you a ton. Thanks, Noel.